locating the word of God in the real world, which is obviously where it is. I think that can be really powerful and it doesn't have to be the whole sermon, but you know, if your congregation are journeying with you through the year and you're introducing a two, three, four minute, even apologetic seam into the exposition, you know, it cumulatively builds in God's people a confidence that the Christian faith is true and that the scriptures make sense, not just in a kind of religious bubble when we enter it, but they actually have, you know, touch, the scriptures has touch point with, with reality and reality as we face it. And I think it also then encourages people to, to reflect biblically on the questions their friends have and the conversations they want to be having, you know, in the workplace and all of that. Hey, welcome to the Expositors Collective Podcast, episode 224. I'm your host, Mike Neglia. And the voice that you heard is that of our guest for this week, Dr. Amy Orr-Ewing. Now, Dr. Orr-Ewing is an author, a theologian, a speaker, an apologist, a persuader, and an evangelist. And in this conversation, we speak about the the role of persuasion and even the use of apologetics to overcome people's objections to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We speak about ways to make the message of the Bible be seen as contemporary, valuable, and beautiful rather than antiquated, untrue, or irrelevant to everyday life. I was excited to speak to her over Zoom for this episode, and I also am really looking forward to being able to sit and learn from her face-to-face at the upcoming Calvary Chapel CGN International Conference, which is taking place June 26th to the 29th in Costa Mesa, California at the historic Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa Church. Uh, The theme of this year's conference is gospel culture, a colony of heaven in a country of death. And the speakers this year include, obviously, Dr. Amy Orr-Ewing, previous guests on this show, Ray Ortland, Dominic Doan, um, as well as Tim Chaddock, who was on the show just recently, Nick Cady, um, as well as Doug Sauter, Pancho Juarez, and Tony Clark, who haven't been on this show yet. Uh, I really want to invite you to consider coming along. If you're part of the Calvary Chapel Network of Churches, then of course, I certainly hope to see you there. But also, this is open to anyone or everyone involved in gospel ministry. And so I invite you, there'll be a link in the show notes for this uh, registration, but you can go to conference.calvarychapel.com to find out more information. And hopefully, I'll see you in Costa Mesa, California at the end of June. All right, I'm going to get out of your way, and here is this interview with Dr. Amy Orr-Ewing. All right, hi. Uh, Welcome to the Expositors Collective Podcast. I'm thrilled to be speaking with Dr. Amy Orr-Ewing. Good morning, and welcome to the show. Hi, good morning, Mike. Great to see you. 
Yeah. Well, likewise, you you just got your cup of coffee, so we are ready for a chat. <laughs> the first question that we first question that we always ask, and I think it's a great way to get to know you a little bit and your story, is Amy. Would you mind telling us about the first time that you ever like talked about the Bible or talked about Jesus in a public setting? Wow. Well, I think the most memorable one. There, there may have been sort of smaller opportunities before this was I was 15 and I was part of a youth with a mission team that had gone into the Czech Republic. It was the year after the Berlin Wall came down. So you're talking, you know, post-communist country just emerging into into freedom, lots of people interested and open. And so we were a group of young people. We were doing kind of performing arts, so dance and songs and stuff, and then like proclamation of the word in in public spaces. And generally, you know, obviously it would be one of the leaders that, that kind of spoke. But on this one occasion, we were in Wenceslas Square in Prague, which is, if any of you have been there, just stunningly beautiful. And yeah. It was in the summer and there were just crowds and crowds of people, probably over a thousand people had sort of stopped to to watch and to listen. And one of the leaders just said to me, Amy, I think you are meant to to, to sort of give the word. And I thought, sorry, sorry, what? Um, Okay, right. Okay, you know, absolutely heart racing and... I think I just spoke from, you know, John 3.16 about the love of God shown in, in the world in Jesus and probably wasn't very good at all, but God was very gracious. And there was a, a, a really amazing response to the gospels. We kind of then went out into the crowds in twos and led people to Jesus. And that experience spoke volumes to me of, um, of the YWAM leadership, to, to give a young person a chance, you know, having actually given us lots of training and encouragement along the way, not really preaching trainings per se, but but sort of spotting, I guess, potential. And obviously for me as a woman, that was, you know, quite hard to come by that, that you would be given that kind of opportunity. So with great fear and trembling, it was a, a memorable day. Wild. And how how long was it between the time that you were like tapped and asked to to talk to the actual talk? Was oh, it like a moment? No or more what? than twenty minutes. Really, yeah. really. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow, yeah. wow. And and then were you scribbling notes or were you praying? What I mean, I know it was a long time ago, but yeah, I was also in some of the dances and songs. So really? I had every you had your Bible there, and I yeah. did have I did have some notes. And I actually had, I had a little thing prepared because we we all had to have our kind of testimony prepared. We need to have, to have something prepared to say. Okay. I just wasn't expecting to say it to a thousand people, you yeah. know, yeah. with that kind of situation. Yeah. So wow. get that notebook out. <laughs> yeah. Well, several miracles are are there, but I think also too, like I've, I've been involved in like, you know, this kind of youth drama pantomime things. And the fact that it drew a crowd at all because <laughs> those things are so right. cheesy. But but they they kind of they were they had their moments and maybe they even still work in some context. But yeah. to draw a crowd is a is a rare wonderful. Actually, having said that, two of the people that were on that team have since went on to become pop stars. So you know they the standard of singing and music was pretty good. All right, wow. All right, 
not by me. I was very much in the back, but <laughs> yeah. Well, I never did actual singing. It was just kind of like the pantomime, you know, the, the king of hearts and this yeah. and that. Anyway, that's another thing. So your first time ever, yeah, talking in public, or or at least at least this the thing was like a, an invitational. You were inviting people to to believe, maybe even a degree of like persuading uh, yeah. people to place their trust in Christ. And and since then, I know that your um, reputation, career, or or ministry um, has been one of like apologetics or invitation or or persuasion. Would you mind giving us maybe like the, the quick What's happened between 15 and today? Um, how, yeah. what's, what's gotten you into, I guess, this this vocation of evangelist? Yeah, thank you. So obviously I'm based here in Britain. You can probably tell from my accent. I think you said that earlier. But that meant and has meant as a young person who's a follower of Jesus that you're not really in a Christian culture. You mm. are sharing the gospel with your friends at school. You're kind of inviting them to, to things to come and know Jesus, but it's it's very much a hostile um, situation or apathy. Those are the two things you're really focused, uh, dealing with. And so for me, that was my story. There was a very small group of us who were Christians at school, not a big youth group in church or anything. So you're kind of learning what it means to persuade as you go along because you work out what doesn't work what what is unpersuasive I went to um, Oxford to study theology as an undergraduate and during that time really went through I guess a lot of again experiencing hostile pushback and that was from your your kind of professors and teachers and so I was really forced to ask myself do I believe this A and B is it actually true you know because there's quite a high level of cost involved and you know you're just facing this onslaught of of questions and objections and through that was really a three-year process there were different characters and Tom N.T. Wright being very key Professor Alistair McGrath as well very key and Professor David Wenham and others who were just exemplified that thoughtful honest um, approach to to the word to, to the questions of the age and then during that time at Oxford I was invited to just give little talks I mean really small things maybe 20 or 30 people here or there and and I, I just began I guess to emerge in a very very small scale ministry of evangelism and then I went, went to do postgraduate study. I was going to be doing a, a doctorate back at Oxford. My husband was training for the ministry, um, ordained ministry. And I was asked by a fledgling group of, of a new organisation that was focused on apologetics and evangelism to come and join there and to really help shape that ministry initially in the UK. And so so I did that and just God opened amazing doors of opportunity to, to speak in churches. Yes, but lots in universities, secular institutions where the Christians would invite you in to speak and they bring friends in a crowd to come and ask questions. And then, you know, that that kind of grew into a more international ministry and writing ministry as well. So, yeah. Wow. So. You talked about that YWAM leader kind of spotting potential all those all those years ago, and uh, that really has has come to pass. And so that's an, an encouragement. So yeah, what what do you believe? So that's kind of the vocational evangelist, which is which is rare. You know, you're you're outnumbered. You know, yeah. there's not many yeah. vocational evangelists. 
maybe I wonder if you could speak to us Bible teachers and preachers who are not vocational evangelists or might even say, listen, I'm not really gifted in, in evangelism. You know, I've, I've actually heard that a lot from listeners to this podcast. People would say like, well, you know, I'm a, I'm a Bible teacher. I'm an expositor, um, not really an evangelist. And some people have asked if I could get guests on the show to encourage us in that like apologetic oriented, invitational giving type of uh, teaching and preaching. So what are the ways that you think that like apologetics can be rolled into uh, the regular teaching and preaching ministry of the church? I think that's such an important question. And honestly, I also think often we sort of imagine apologetics to be this very rarefied thing and evangelism to be this sort of you know Billy Graham in the stadium I know people listening to this podcast know that's not the case but just deep down we have this feeling that it's them and not us but actually you know in in a regular preaching ministry a sort of seam of apologetics and a, an expectation of making an invitation to people either to go deeper with God or to make some kind of a commitment I think to do that intentionally just lifts the level of your Bible teaching in, in a way that, that really helps the congregation. So I think I would be trying to encourage you to, to not only think about, you know, when you're thinking about your exegesis, you might be thinking about illustration of how you kind of go deeper into what the point is and maybe trying to use contemporary illustration, but really think about what the apologetic challenge of the passage might be, what might be the or 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 the the apologetic opportunity of the of the passage be. So whether it's, you know, my husband was preaching um through the book of Daniel and you know there's the whole scene of of the king ending up sort of going out to eat grass and thinking he's an animal and you know that seems like a really, really odd thing to happen. And then you think, well, what, what does that look like? What does that mean in the contemporary world? Well, we have all sorts of body dysmorphia happening in our world right now. How does the Bible position this? What, you know, what, what does, what does the Lord Jesus have to say into, into, into that situation? Or, um, you know, you might think about introducing issues of perhaps science and faith when, when you're talking about creation in a psalm or in Genesis, or even just referencing the historical reliability of the Bible, even as one small, you know, three-minute section in in a in a New Testament text that, that you're giving. So locating the word of God in the real world, which is obviously where it is. I think that can be really powerful and it doesn't have to be the whole sermon, but you know, if your congregation are journeying with you through the year and you're introducing a two, three, four minute, even apologetic seam into the exposition, you know, it cumulatively builds in God's people a confidence that the Christian faith is true and that the scriptures make sense, not just in a kind of religious bubble when we enter it, but they actually have, you know, touch, the scriptures has touch point with, with reality and reality as we face it. And I think it also then encourages people to, to reflect biblically on the questions their friends have and the conversations they want to be having, you know, in the workplace and all of that. That is such a, an encouraging, I love the phrase that you mentioned there, like, like little apologetic scenes 
mm-hmm. within the larger sermon or or Bible study. I think that some people might feel a bit intimidated or to think, well, I'm not able to give an apologetics talk. And mm-hmm. sounds like what you're saying is well, we, we don't need to, but just mm-hmm. to include the fact that this addresses the, the real questions, the real concerns, the real uh, objections of our friends. And let's spend a few minutes on this. Yeah. And even to just, you know, I know people joke about how long can you go in an evangelical sermon before C.S. Lewis is quoted. (laughs) The reason that's a joke is because he did this so well, isn't it? So even quoting someone else and then, you know, the thoughtful Christian who wants to grow, who's there hearing that, can actually then go and follow that, that thread themselves with more depth. But you're equipping you're equipping the saints then to to go off in the right direction and you know so so referencing thinkers you know quote John Lennox quote C.S. Lewis quote Alistair McGrath and you know Tim Keller whoever yeah yeah and and for some people it's just you know one more quote whatever Um, and then if you're addressing though the the objection or the challenge or or even the friend of the questioner they dial in on that and then that could even i mean to use lewis c in language that's a a wardrobe that opens up and then there's a whole world um, to go through there and those of us who are talking in public uh, we have a chance to i don't know steward or introduce people to those that have thought far more in depth about the issues that people are addressing. Yeah. And I would also encourage preachers listening to this to just bear in mind, it's highly likely in the Western world that whenever you are preaching, there will be people who are not followers of Jesus. It might just be one or two, but it's highly, highly likely whether they're family members that have been dragged along and, you know, outwardly they might seem like a, you know, part of a Christian family, but there might be an internal struggle going on or someone's relative has come along. So just that, that, that sense that we're not just speaking in a rarefied bubble where everyone agrees already. So to, to include that element of persuasiveness persuading people towards the scriptures persuading people towards Christ winning people I think that's a that's a kind of mentality thing isn't it and in the states as well as you know as America changes dramatically you know in my working life last 25 years the U.S. scene has changed so much so that you know not everyone's a Christian of course you know that but but to to really embrace that so deep within you as you're approaching God's people and and, and opening the word you have in mind those who don't know Jesus including in an exposition of Leviticus or whatever it's it's just it is a reality that we want you know people to be drawn to Christ yeah, we had we spoke before we started recording about a um, baptisms that we just did a couple of days ago, and you know I baptized Connor and Connor's you know he was uh, married to a believer and you know she was dragging him to church for four years yeah and he placed his trust in Christ about right. a, a month and a half ago right. and and they always sat in the front yeah. <laughs> and and um, for me like Connor was almost like this in my face reminder of the fact that there's many other people like him, but, you know, I I know him, I have a relationship with him. And, and, and as I'm at my desk, you know, writing out the sermon, it's like, okay. And 
what's there for Connor or what's there for, for people like him that maybe are, are coming, but they're not bought in yet. And had a, a good conversation even with his wife standing by the river after the baptisms. And she's like, you know, you know, Connor was saying, you know, like the world makes sense through the lens of the Bible. And he really appreciated the times when like objections would be addressed. Not again, not for the whole talk, but like just to have a few moments of like acknowledging some of you might not believe this. And, and here's, here's the reasons why. And here's how I think this passage maybe addresses that in a deeper level. Okay. Now we're going to move on to the next verse. And it's just kind of an acknowledgement that I think is helpful. I'm not the expert. You're the expert. <laughs> I just want to, no, <laughs> I don't want to make this my, my show. You're, you're the, the featured guest, but. No, that's wonderful. But see now, now Connor is off the list. He's not. He's no longer the token non-believer in the room. So I have to <laughs> hone in on the next token non-believer. When I was um, younger, or even in my Bible college years, or or thinking about apologetics, my understanding of apologetics was largely refuting the Mormons, or how do you defend the Trinity against this group or or that? And there certainly is is value in there. But as I've like benefited from your own ministry and looked at the stuff that you've written and talked about, largely your apologetic focus is not, here's how we disprove the Jehovah's Witnesses. Largely, you're not really talking about like, is the Bible um, true? Although, of course, you address that, but it kind of, is the Bible good? Is Christianity like good for the world? And does it address our... Now, is this kind of a, a shift in apologetics or is this something that you've maybe just dialed in on? Yeah, that's... Um, that's such a perceptive question and 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 thought, you know. So 25 years ago, when I was starting out in my in my 20s, early 20s, just coming out of university, and you know, you'd ask the question, what are the sort of Christian apologetic resources? Well, you'd have your um evidence for the manuscript tradition of the Bible. So right. for the UK, that would be FF Bruce, and then the um Josh McDowell as well. And, and similar evidence to resurrection, Habermas, you know, and then other than that, you know, if you were really hardcore, you might know about Norman Geisler and maybe even Bill Craig. So perhaps a tiny little bit of a more kind of philosophical apologetics that might engage a person who just says God doesn't exist. But for me, it felt like, you know, so, that, so we're talking about late 1990s, early 2000s, the questions then of the postmodern culture were much more around relativism and then apologetics did begin to engage with that. Can, is anything true? Is Jesus the only way? And then shifting towards questions about power. So postmodernism is very interested in who's got the power and the, the positioning of what the Christian faith is from a hostile point of view shifted away from oh it's old-fashioned and you know it's from the dark ages and it's kind of quaint and probably not true it shifted from that to it's not good it's actually harmful and that then coincided with massive changes in people's perceptions of sexuality and then the rise of this you know questions about colonialism and race and what has the role of the church been in all of that and so if apologetics is really about reaching people to come to know the Lord Jesus, then it needs to be addressing the questions and objections that those people have. And so it, it's felt like, you know, it's constantly a moving target. And that's good yeah. because, mm -hmm. you know, that, that keeps us on our toes. So obviously questions about suffering have always been live, but, you know, that's that's one that's gone all the way through. But 
But now in the cultural moment we're in, where there's this tremendous rage and anger towards people who don't agree with me, and then there's this kind of perception of a certain type of Christian being very allied with you know, a wing of politics, you know, navigating that so that we actually win people to Jesus. And then you've got other really interesting phenomena like men in the West who love Jordan Peterson. So, you know, there's been this sense of, oh my goodness, you know, we we can't be too certain about anything and the church preaching about hell or, you know, giving people moral categories, you, you know, that, that's all this huge problem. We're never going to win anyone if we major on that. And now suddenly you've got a generation emerging who are listening in their millions to Jordan Peterson, who is giving people categories of certainty, who's giving people like a pattern and a framework through which to see the world. So apologetics is, you know, taking the opportunities of of the moment we're in and showing how the Christian faith is true and it's real. It answers the longings of the human heart. Yeah. Did not expect Jordan Peterson to make an appearance in this conversation. <laughs> well, remember, um, I've got I've got three sons, so yeah. my my um twins are 16. So and obviously doing a lot of university evangelism. So, you know, you're kind of seeing what, what are young people reading and what are they drawn to and listening to? Yeah. Why, why, why do you think that there's a draw towards, you know, this, this clear speaking man giving certainty and talking about absolutes in the world? Why do you think that's uh, attractive? Because, because we've been force fed for, well, since the sixties when postmodernism emerges in, you know, in, in continental philosophy, but then the sexual revolution, all of that, we've been force fed this idea of, you know, meaninglessness, yeah. no big overarching story, and that will set you free. So the more sexual partners you have, um, the more you just kind of free wheel through life, you know, that's the path to happiness. You need to throw off the restraint of, of certainty and of categories. And, you know, Jesus said it. If you can, the more you consume of of that kind of food, you're just going to end up hungry. It's only the bread of life that can ultimately satisfy that hunger. So I think there's a sort of a sense that we've people have drunk deeply from that well that offered so much and promised so much, but it's left them empty. And so now they're looking for there's there's this vacuum. There's this moment. They're looking for certainty. So on the one hand, you've got the, the certainty that Jordan Peterson offers. And then on the other, culturally, you've got the certainty that the sort of intersectionality movement offers, which is that anyone who disagrees with my woke categories must die. They must be cancelled. You know, you know, we're going to sort of man the barricade that, that they can't be allowed in civil society. So, Operate the barricade. Yeah. Don't man the barricade. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yes. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. Person yeah. the barricades. Yeah, yes. Quite. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Both of the, I go to two different barbers. Each of those barbers love Jordan Peterson and, and, uh, and, and, and through that in kind of a surprising way are interested in the old Testament and are interested in like, because Jordan's got this odd, odd fascination with the Bible. I don't think he handles it very well, but he's got this, it's, it's a fascinating moment that we're in. 
Yeah, exactly. Well, that's a whole nother, a whole nother, a whole nother tangent. Yeah. But thank you for, for bringing that up. Maybe we can discuss it more in person at the Calvary Global Network Conference coming up June 26th. So yeah, to kind of pivot into the next thing, you are one of the the main speakers at the yeah the Calvary Pastors and Leaders International Conference, which is coming up June 26th to the 29th, and you're speaking on like gospel culture and a culture of goodness and grace. I'm looking forward to to being there in the front row. What are you going to talk to to me and to others about for your slot? So so Brian asked me to to come and and speak into this topic of in the midst of all the kind of toxic culture aspects, both out there in the world that we're trying to reach and win for Christ, but also actually, if we're honest, you know, toxic patterns as well in the church and in Christian organisations, which are are really kind of coming to attention. How do we not just proclaim the good news, but also create that culture of goodness and grace that that is sort of demonstrably different? And so going to be thinking about how that kind of culture doesn't arise by accident. I guess, honestly, looking at how Christian churches and organisations can fall into, you know, toxic patterns. And, you know, talking as someone who was supported by um, Reverend Zacharias International Ministries in my ministry for, for like 20 years, you know, so observing um, some of those kind of toxic characteristics in an organisation like celebrity culture, exceptionalism, you know, love of money, obsession with power, and then, you know, even more ominous things like, you know, covering things up and gaslighting whistleblowers and sexual abuse, sadly, and even cancel culture. All of those things that are so against the gospel, yeah. how do we resist those things and be kind of honest about their pull and, you know, honestly appraise where we're at? And then also recognize that the nations are in this cultural moment where we're crying out for justice. Like there's this generational desire for justice. That's where all this rage about intersectionality actually comes from. And there's a longing for goodness and beauty and truth. And yet we seem to be missing that moment. So people might be turning to Jordan Peterson or other things. They don't think they're going to find it or see it in the church. So in the session together, that main session, we're going to be looking at how we can sort of actively resist those toxic tendencies, what they are, what they feel like, what they look like, and how instead we can establish kind of more gospel patterns. Yeah, that's what I'm hoping to do anyway. (laughs) I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, because yeah, this this organization, you know, many people would say it's it's got the gospel doctrine correct, that there is a a truthful proclamation of, of the good news. But yet the gospel doctrine is one thing that's the forward facing. But then if the gospel culture is absent within the organization, as you mentioned, yeah, that's a toxic pattern and ultimately devours itself and is exposed and defaced or defamed. And um, yeah, so it's a it's a a heavy, heavy word that you you have to bring. Yeah, it is heavy, but it feels like there's a sort of moment of reckoning that's happening. And that's that's true in, in the US, in the global church, isn't it? Where 
where we can see this kind of shaking of some of those things. And I feel like that's good. That's it's like God is cleaning house and we want to be on board with that and build differently for for um, the next generation. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I'm using vocabulary from Ray Ortland's his little book where, where he's actually speaking as well, too. But yeah, he's he talks about. Yeah. But through our our cultures, we can undo all that we're saying. If if the, yeah. the gospel culture is absent, then it's, yeah, it erodes or eviscerates the gospel preaching that we're doing. And because the gospel is so important for, for multiple reasons, we don't want to erode it, but because it's so important that the culture, the culture of goodness and grace is really incredibly valuable and it's not peripheral. It actually probably matters a whole lot more than a lot of people have assumed. Yeah. 100% agree with that. Well, I'm looking forward to it. And there'll be a, a link in the description if people want to, to register. And um, that's yeah, great. Yeah, come and join us. We'd love come to. Come and join us. Yeah. yeah. And come to my, I'm doing a workshop on sermon preparation and delivery. So come to that. But the main session, you're, you're the main session I'm just stuck in the <laughs> workshop. You know, you're, you're a keynote speaker. I'm a small print on the side, but that's, that's, that's all right. A final question. We always kind of end with, uh, with these conversations, with this kind of question. So as, you know, someone who, who speaks, and quite gifted as a communicator, how are you trying to, to improve? I don't think that you assume that you've arrived already. What's an area that you're trying to get better at even now? Mm. Wow, I love that question. <laughs> Where do I start? There are lots of, <laughs> lots of areas. I think that for 20 plus years, I was very focused on excellence and on you know, really good research and on sort of seeking to persuade through, you know, brilliant, hopefully good apologetics and, you know, strong exposition. And I feel like in the last three years, what I've been through as a, as a person, you know, being part of the sort of some of the whistleblowers within the Rabbi Zacharias scandal situation and that actually it was unfolding and we didn't really know what was happening so you're just actually pushing for investigation and for truth to come out but you don't know what what the outcome of that is going to be and then um, going through a lot of loss so experiencing obviously a huge sense of betrayal when this person is is unmasked as an abuser but then also the experiences of you know retaliation and loss of income and all of that that are consequences of of trying to to take a stand and so personally I've been through a sort of season of trauma and loss and trying to explore how um, to incorporate that when we're weak, then we're strong, that it's actually through weakness and vulnerability often that God speaks and does amazing things and draws people to Jesus. And walking a line of, you know, this is not preaching as kind of misery memoir or poor me, but actually drawing on how Paul positions personal suffering and the expectation of difficulty and, and how we see that in the Psalms as a kind of, you know, lament and all of that as an integral part of, of worship. And so I'm trying to learn as a preacher who's been quite like, you know, bring it on, bring your questions on. God is big, he's strong, the Bible can stand up to it, you know, like quite a sort of, like, I guess, confident in, in the truth of this and let's persuade 
and and then trying to integrate this this theme of of vulnerability and awareness of trauma as well not just in myself but awareness that as we're persuading as we're preaching many many people are suffering many many people are you know either have just gone through or or are supporting someone who's going through trauma so yeah being trauma informed and integrating vulnerability yeah well i think of the great hymn that says uh little ones to him belong uh we are weak and he is strong yeah. and uh, i think in that even in our weakness there is a way and i i never heard that phrase before a misery memoir there is a way i think that we can be almost self-indulgent or even if kind of like suffering or trauma is kind of a currency of today and so you know if you want to like amplify your own suffering i think there is there is that i think there's ways to irresponsibly do that but not to use it as as currency but to use it as just kind of allowing the the strength of god to be shown through the weakness of the communicator i think that's a, a valuable thing and worth worth pursuing yeah. um, somebody i can't think of who originally said it but he said that um if you preach to the brokenhearted um you'll never lack an audience uh because there's a broken heart in every pew was that rick warren anyway it I've heard him seems say like something he would that. say yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah i've sort of been living there really i mean and it's a it's a new it's a new dimension and you know it just experiencing god's grace through that has been wonderful yeah well, Amy, thank you so much for, for your time. Thanks for bringing us in on this, this whole story that started when you were a teenager and <laughs> up until up until now and the, the ups and downs that you've um, you've let us in on. I, I do appreciate it. Hopefully this will encourage, you know, Bible teachers and preachers to include more of these um, apologetic scenes mm -hmm. into their regular teaching, but also to do so as humbled individuals uh, rather than the confident, you know, Bible answer man or a Bible <laughs> answer person. Um, but yeah, people that realize that we are weak, but, but he is strong. Yeah. So thank you so much. And, you know, Lord willing, I look forward to seeing you uh, at the end of June. And uh, I'll be, be there in the front row, amening along. <laughs> and uh, thank you very much, Amy. I appreciate thank this. You. Bye. All right. Well, that was great, wasn't it? Uh, thank you so much to Amy and thanks to you for listening all the way to the end. So you certainly know this by now, but Amy is speaking at the CGN International Conference in Costa Mesa, California, uh, June 26th, 27th, 28th, and 29th is the dates in the calendar for you to commit to coming along and hearing from Amy and Ray Ortland and Dominic Doan and Nick Cady and Brian Broderson and so many more. Um, we got a great lineup of main session speakers. And then also, as you heard, we've got some real B-list celebrities for the workshops. So I hope to see you there for my workshop on sermon preparation and delivery. All right, make sure that you're subscribed to this show because next Tuesday, we have a great interview with Dr. Uche Anazor speaking about apathy, apathy in the, in the life of the preacher and also combating apathy in the life of the congregation. I'm going to leave you with a preview clip for next episode, but make sure that on Spotify, make sure that on YouTube or Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to this show, make sure that you are subscribed 
so that next Tuesday and every Tuesday, you have fresh deliveries to help you grow in your personal study and public proclamation of God's word. Here's a preview for next week's episode with Dr. Uche Anazor. Uh, do you have a, a, a brief word for the preacher who's maybe apathetic? Yeah, I, I think the, the preacher is on one level um, just another sheep in, in, in the same way that, you know, there, I, I know I know preachers tend to tend to see themselves as we we are, you know, we are the shepherds over over sheep, but preachers are sheep. And so the, the, there's, there's a sense in which the, the very same things that that others need um, mm-hmm. to sort of break out of their apathy, we need. But there but there are but there are certain things that um, I think preachers are more are more prone to. So I, I, I think preachers, if they're honest, they, they can be more prone to the, the compassion fatigue that we mentioned earlier mm-hmm. and, and, the, and the sort of like apathy through basically constant constantly saying the same kinds of things and and kind of getting cold and numb to the to saying the same old kinds of things and so preachers have to be extra vigilant to 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 try to keep themselves in in relationship with actual people that they're able to 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 own their indifference to and it's and it's embarrassing for for a preacher or for me as a as a, as a, the, as a theology teacher to ever own that I I don't care as much about the things that I'm actually that are actually coming out of my mouth right now. Yeah, I can pretend like I am, but I need I need a safe place to be able to say to someone like I don't or I'm struggling with doubt and I'm really dealing with doubt and and I, and I need someone to like walk with me and pray with me and help me to process my doubt and so and so I I think preachers because they and pastors because they tend to be isolated so much from like relationships or relationships that feel like equal relationships. Right. I think we have to, we have, we have to press into those because that's the place where, where we can actually like lay bare before someone. Here's what's actually going on. Here are the causes of my indifference. Can you walk with me and pray with me and work with me and hold me really actually accountable in, in these areas so that I don't, I don't sort of stay in this place of indifference and apathy. Mm-hmm.